Tony Duchesne here in another episode of Drinks with Tony. The first interview done remotely, not like the two hot bodies in proximity of each other like regular episodes, but bopping around on the virtual World Wide Web Highway. And with that, we have a new feature on Drinks with Tony. That is video interviews. If you dig the podcast, then subscribe to my YouTube channel named Tony Duchesne for the video version of Drinks with Tony called Turn It Up. I have four interviews in the can that we'll post in the next week, but wait, there's even more. On Turn It Up, musicians also perform, and I interview them. Coming up on Turn It Up, we have Nick Flynn, Pamela Holm, Beth Lissick, Caitlin Meyer, and music by Jeff Campbell, Gabriel Hart of Jail Weddings, Terry Ashkenos of Fake Your Own Death, and Ricarda Parasol. Subscribe to Tony Duchesne YouTube channel for all of that fun and more. While Drinks with Tony is a weekly podcast, Turn It Up will air more often, have authors not featured on Drinks with Tony, and even actors and filmmakers. All right? All right. Let's do this. Hi, I'm Beth Lissick, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Beth Lissick. She's the author of Everybody Into the Pool and co-founder of the Porchlight Storytelling series. Her debut novel, Edie on the Green Screen, came out last month. Beth Lissick, how are you? I'm so good, Tony. I'm really happy to be talking to you today. I Well, I got to tell you, on my calendar at this exact time, where we were supposed to uh, meet in person at Stories in Echo Park. I couldn't believe I set the exact time. I know. I know. I noticed that too. So instead of us being together in Los Angeles, you're in Los Angeles right now, right? You're there. I'm here. I'm in New York. Yeah. Um, how's New York treating you? Are you out of New It's great. Are you in, are you in Brooklyn right now? Or you're... No, we, we came up about a month ago to a place where, where my husband has a recording studio in the Hudson Valley. So it's like two hours north of Manhattan. And we came up here, and so we've been in nature, which has been great. Like, I'm mostly a city person, but I really love being out here, especially now. So, um, yeah, so we haven't been back uh, to the city for almost a month now. I, I was there in uh, October, um, and I was on a we – were, they were doing location scouting because I was shadowing a director for Madam Secretary – I was all over upstate New York. I was all through New Jersey. It was, I was like going, oh my God, this is the best tour of upstate New York and everything because we're going to the greatest places. I'm not paying anything. I'm just getting fed. And I'm just like, this is all right. What are you doing? What what director were you shadowing or what was that for? Uh, I was shadowing Eric Stoltz and he was directing the last episode of Madam Secretary. Yeah. It was it was good fun because he directed Jesus Jerk, so it was so much fun to just be in his directing vibe again. It brought me like right back to when we were like on set. It's just I'm like oh my god, it's just it it just it felt like home. The, the, yeah. Even the fighting, there was like fighting with the, among them on pre production. I'm just like I'm not even part of this, but this just right. reminds me of everything that's beautiful. <laughs> Uh, and that's, did you go to any small towns when you were? Oh, yeah. I, that's what I love about the East Coast. I'm so, you know, we're California people, but I love the small 
industrial towns of the East Coast. They it's are just amazing. So unusual. It's, it's so, so unlike amazing. California. Yeah, it's to the point where I'm like, you know what? I could see myself living here. Like some of the just these. Uh, I wish I could remember the city names. I have them all on my map. When when we were driving, I had I, I was in the production van. I had no idea where we were. I just kept doing my map um, on Google, and then I would hit hit the screenshot, 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 just so I knew where I was. We were in a we were in Sleepy Hollow, and then another town next to Sleepy Hollow, and it's just it is gorgeous. Oh man. Speaking of being on the high end TV production and film production, we've both been extras. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now you you started doing it when you moved to LA from San Francisco. No, I started doing it. Uh, yeah, a little about maybe about a year after I moved, and I was like, I still need to get health insurance. And then someone said, Well, you should just join SAG and you know become an extra because that's easy. And I was like, Okay. And then I and then I got the bumps to SAG. I joined SAG, going great. Now I'll just get health. Now I'll work enough and get health insurance. Oh my! You got to work every day to get health insurance if you want to be an extra. It's crazy, yeah. I never I never actually even joined because I, everybody told me don't join until they may until you have to do it for a project. So all the extra work I did after I moved to New York was all non-union, which as you know being a uh, background, that's like the lowest of the low. I mean, you eat last. And all anybody wants to talk to, you know, nobody nobody Everybody, all everybody talks about is, is getting in SAG and if you can be in SAG and how amazing it is. And then the people do it and they're like, I don't know if I should have done that. But are you still, are you still, do you pay your dues? And I still pay my dues, but I haven't done anything for, uh, since 2017. Um, because it's just, uh. Even even on union, it's just it's soul sucking because it's just like I thought. Oh, okay, I can just I can compartmentalize this because I don't give a shit about acting at all. And that's what was beautiful about it. I was on um I was on Crazy Ex Girlfriend a lot. I was kind of just always in their bar scenes, and most of the time the back of my head, sometimes not even used. And I was like, fine with me. Yeah, exactly. That's the part I love trying not to get in the shot because everybody's trying to get in the shot. So it's really funny to just be like, I don't know, it's in the back of my head or I'm not even in it. I'm not even. And, and it's just it's so funny because people are I don't know what people are thinking that that like the camera's going to go across their face and they're going to be like, you're a star. Get it. You know, I <laughs> I don't know. It cracked me up. People actually think they're going to get the bump up because they they were out of focus behind, uh, you know, Luke Perry or something. <laughs> it's like, right. Oh, R.I.P. I know. I know. No, you know, I got the, I was thinking of Luke Wilson. I was right next to Luke Wilson in a, in a, one of those TV shows where the way I had to cross him, I, I, it was like, we, I was so tired. It was like two in the morning. This guy goes, Hey, how you doing, man? I'm like, Oh God, I'm exhausted. He's like, yeah, me too. And I look up and it's Luke Wilson. I'm all, Oh, hi. Just the star of the show. All right. I hadn't, and then, they're like, okay, you're gonna have to cross him, behind him, and then uh, and it's the, they just told me where to cross. I'm like, all right, so I cross behind him. There's nowhere to go. I'm stuck like this. He's like three inches away from me, screaming at the, in the scene, having an argument and screaming at the top of his lungs. As I'm like trying to sit there, and just go, okay, don't look at him because that'll make him weird. That'll make everything weird. And we had to right. keep taking it, and I knew I knew every line of dialogue by the end. I was just like, I have to sit here while um, Luke Luke Wilson keeps screaming. <laughs> it was yeah. it was such yeah. a surreal experience. How many people would think that was the greatest day of their lives? And I'm like, I just want to go back to craft services. <laughs> 
what I loved, what I loved about doing it in New York, especially because I had just, I'd moved there and I just saw all these weird places in New York that I would have never seen, you know, just the insides of all these amazing apartments and churches and office buildings. And, and so, and it was, and I did everything on the subway because there were a couple times where we'd have to meet a van and go somewhere, but I would imagine in LA it would be really hard too, because you might be driving all over the place. Like, cause you have to self-report and like drive wherever the, yeah, yeah. That's a lot of work. It's kind of brutal. Yeah. There were the most brutal. I um, was, I was on some Jamie Foxx movie that never got released that he directed. And I think someone got me too on that set. Cause it was just like, it, that was, it was like, just like his view, blah, blah, blah. And he's like running all around, taking selfies with all the extras. And then all of a sudden it's just like, you don't hear a thing. <laughs> but, uh, but we had to drive to his ranch out in, um, the middle of nowhere in the valley. It took me an hour and a half to get there. And, but they had, it was the last day on set. So they had lobster and steak. Oh my God. I did it. I did a um, episode of um, Law and Order SVU and it was like their 500th episode and they had lobster. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what extras talk about. Extras talk about yeah. how the food was. It's just like, did you get to meet yeah. anyone? You're like, I doing. gotta tell you. Yeah. 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 They had they had the they had poke bowls right there. You got sushi, you know. It's... Oh my god! Yeah, the 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 endless indignities of 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 just like being being the background, and then us talking right now and talking about all the stuff that is exactly what people talk about when they're on the set. And like it's it's it like rarely did I have a conversation that wasn't about the food or some other show that every somebody else had been on. Like that's what everybody wanted to talk about was whatever other show or whatever movie or when they stood next to the star, you know, it's like, that's that work. I mean, it's, and I, I just, I really enjoyed being a fly on the wall though. I just, I thought it was so fascinating and, and, and so, um, the, the people who do it, I mean, so many of them are retired, school teachers and and you know just just a lot, a lot my favorite people were the older people because they were just doing it because they were healthy they were you know they still wanted to work but they didn't have jobs anymore and they could kind of enjoy it too in that way that I think younger people were just like trying to figure out how this was going to help their career you know yeah yeah some good it's not going to help like, anybody's career and then like central casting no. always goes Brad Pitt was an extra like that's their only selling option <laughs> It's like and Brad Pitt all was the celebrities extra. in the world. That's the only one they could ever name. Yeah, yeah. It's like they should they should uh, give him a, a endorsement deal because every time I went to Central Casting, it was like, and Brad Pitt was one of you. As there's like, you know, 140 people signing up every goddamn day. <laughs> all right. With that, we'll segue to something else. <laughs> How about writing? Okay, so. You got so this is this the I love this. But by the way, it's still my favorite novel of 2020. Edie on the green Tony, screen. It made me so happy that you liked it so much. I so you grew up in where did you went to high school in Millbury? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it made me so happy that you liked it so much because you were one of the first people to read it. I mean, besides my reader group, you know, it's like you just I think I put up a thing for if anybody wanted a galley and, and we got one to you right away. And then it was so awesome to hear back from you that you liked it so much because I do think it's it's, you know, it's kind of a niche thing ish for people. I think it's very, you know, it's so Bay Area centric and it's so a certain um 
I think a certain age group and and subculture of people. So I just kept thinking like, oh yeah, there's probably like between 25 and like 400 people that are going to like this book, you know? So it really made me happy that you liked it. I, I think there's a lot. Well, the, the, here's the thing. We can write about our experience and we can, we can enjoy our experience, which is, you know, of growing up on the peninsula, which was a very unique experience in the 80s and all in, you know, 80s, 90s. It was such a different time for San Francisco and that whole area. But there's also a craft to, to writing a really compelling story that, it, that can blow away everything. And I think that people will, I think people are going to come at this and go, wow, great story. They won't have the same experience I have, but it's almost like, uh, it's like, I was just, I was just rereading a little bit of a uh, journey to the end of the night, Louis Ferdinand Celine. I'm just like, I need some comfort food right now in the pandemic, you know? And it's just like, I'm sure that meant a lot more to Parisians in the, you know, when, when that came out then it, it, they have a, such a different experience. So anyway, all I'm saying is, I, I, my, uh, my girlfriend who, who was just, she only knows L.A. and Rhode Island, essentially. And I, and I was like, you have to read this. This, is my, this was my childhood. This is my life. And she was like, that's a fantastic book. She's a writer, too. She's just like, that was amazing. And she wouldn't say it was amazing if uh, so. Oh, thanks, Tony's girlfriend. Because I, I, I think that there is that, that feeling of growing up in the suburbs and just knowing that like the city's out there for you somewhere, you know, that you're, that you're not meant to be a suburban person and like, but you're just a kid and you live with your family and you're trying to figure out a way to get to this thing that you think is going to be like, that's, that's when I start living, you know, that's when I, that's when it's all going to happen. And it was, yeah, it was so weird to, it just, the San Francisco felt so far to me. It was, it was just like, that was like, a, even though it was about a 20 minute drive, it was still like going to, you know, it was like crossing a border and showing a passport and going. Yeah. My parents, my parents went to San Francisco like once a year, you know, and it was a less than an hour drive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I got to say, I love that you gave a shout out to KFJC. I used to be a KFJC DJ. So when, when, what, what was your slot? When did you, when did you? I was, I was Thursday afternoons when they used to have the one to five. Which was just the brutal five-hour slot. Uh, all their all their slots were five hours um, afternoon slots for five hours until about 1992, and then they switched it up. But yeah, Thursday one to five, I was Maynard. Um, I did I did that I think for a couple years, and then after that I dropped out for a bit because I went back to the Jehovah's Witnesses, and then um, and they like urged me to get out of that awful worldly mess of a radio station. Those people are bad. And then, um, and then I went back and I was doing fill-ins and I did fill-ins and I did specials until about 2005, I think was the last one I did. Oh, wow. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was it's so amazing. That was so magical to be able to turn on the radio from my you know, suburban bedroom and hear KFJC and to hear. So this is if you don't know, you know, junior college radio station, somebody listening to this, um, where they could just play whatever the hell they want. And I still love putting on college radio wherever I am or independent radio because I love that feeling of not knowing what's coming. It's so weird in our curated lives now where everything is, you know, with Spotify playlist and they, you know Netflix shows you things that they think you want to see. And and I love the randomness of radio so much. And, and yeah, KFJC was just huge to me. 
It was to me too. I had no clue. I can just go take radio classes and then start moving up the ranks. I just, I remember being a kid, I was around 15 years old and I finally went left of the dial and I was like, oh my God, what is this demonic music? Yeah. And these people are just, they're like sound nothing like the rock stations. They're like, you know, there's nothing smooth. They're just like, yeah. Um, so buzz Cox and, um, yeah, what? Okay. And before that we heard, you know, Einstein didn't know about and, <laughs> and there's still that beauty at KXLU in Los Angeles. I listened to that and you just, it's, there's still, you, you could still f- feel the, um, the kind of like, look, I'm cool. I know what you need. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, I don't get, I think they do. I think they do know what I need. I think this is, yeah, they're talking to me. What's the station in LA that you listen to? Uh, KXLU. That's out of um, Loyola Marymount, I think, or one of those. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But uh, they don't, it's, it's the San Francisco Bay Area for college radio still wins with, I mean, because with, yeah, with, uh, well, we lost KUSF, though, but we got Calix. We, back in the day, it was KUSF, Calix, KSJS, KSCU, uh, KF- KZSC. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There was, cause there was the Santa Cruz one and then there was the, um, Santa Clara university. Santa right. Clara and Stanford. It was, it was, it's like you had like five college stations to choose from. It was funny. I, I would do graveyard shifts and I would call the other college radio stations and go, Hey dude, let's fuck with people. And we would play the same record at the same time. <laughs> just, everyone, it was just something to get my mind off of being that I was 3am in a booth in the middle of nowhere right. doing nothing. Oh. Just, just for the hope of a joke, without even a Twitter, without something going, hey, look what we did. It's just like, let's right, just right. do this. Yeah, that's so, there was so much just, it, it was like a different kind of, um, like, putting energy out into the void back then. You know, because as people do that now, you can do that on Twitter, and, like, nobody will like your tweet, and you're like, oh, well, I just threw that thing out there. But back then, it's like, yeah, you would... You would just, you would do things and uh, I think it was, it was more, it felt like it was just more for yourself and you, there was never an expectation that there was going to be an audience, you know, you would, whatever it was that you were doing there, you were never, you weren't really, I think in college radio, if you're broadcasting on the radio, you're thinking about the audience, but I think that in just shit you would do with your friends, joking around, pranks, um, run, you know, just, we used to cruise down the El Camino and we would wear um, bathrobes and like wigs with curlers in them and face cream and then crank up, you know, ranchero music and get in with the people cruising on the El Camino just because we thought it was hilarious. And, but we never took pictures of it. We never, I mean, this is even before we had video cameras. I mean, we, yeah. And yeah. film costs too much money to develop. We didn't have the money to drop those off. I, cruising the El Camino, that's hilarious. <laughs> We would just be like, we'd like 16 and had our driver's license. And we're just like, I don't know. What do you do when you have a car? Like, I guess you go cruise the El Camino. <laughs> Going, this is how we, this is how we mate. This is how we find our yeah. mates. Yeah. And we, I mean, we go in gigantic station wagons, you know, I mean, it's just so funny. <laughs> but, um, it, uh, and I really, I mean, what you, what your story just resonates so well, because I think people, um, you know, it's, there was just that flash of time where it's just like, we were, we were everything, you know, we, we were the center of the universe. And then all of a sudden we're not. 
And I think yeah. that's that's just that that's was that's the, that's why I read your book so fast. Usually I get books that come in and I'll just read like the first ten pages and go, oh yeah, yeah, cool. And I usually do that right when they come in and set them aside and try not to read them until I interview. Yeah. I couldn't put yours down. <laughs> I read it like a day. I was like, okay, everything's off the calendar today. I was at the cafe. Just going, I was just eating it up. Ah, that just, that makes me so happy because there definitely was, you know, because I, 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 I guess I didn't, I don't know if I told you this in an email, but, you know, I didn't have my longtime agency that I had that, that did my other books. Like they read this and they're like, uh, it was just way too niche for them. And, and not niche, but more that it just didn't, they wanted her to undergo some huge change. And, and it was actually suggested to me that maybe she become a um, really popular Instagram photographer. <laughs> and I was like, you've got, like I said, if that's your suggestion, then we have nothing in common. Like you, I can't even come back to you with, with why I wouldn't do that, you know? And, and so I just thought, all right, this isn't for. This is coming from your agent. Cause you have a bet. You have, you have the track record of being a best selling New York times author for 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 nonfiction for yeah one of my books one of my books was on uh the new york times bestseller that was essays personal essays and so since then i've had this agent who is in new york and the agency she left and then i got put onto another agent within that agency and he wasn't really interested you know because she was the one that found me and he was just sort of got i got handed off to him and so i wasn't his vibe at all and then when he he passed it on, he's super busy now and like represents the um, like Gilliam Flynn, you know, Gone Girl, like this whole thing. And and so he gave it to somebody else in the office and she read it. And she's the one who suggested the Instagram photographer thing. And I was like, I, I, I just and at that point, too, like it had taken me forever to get them to even read it once I had sent it to them. And so at that point, I just thought, like, I'm so done with this book. I want it to be out. I want it that I didn't, I think I got one more uh, lead on an agent from somebody. And then somebody told me about Leland Chook at um, 713, which is an independent press out of, Bro out of Brooklyn, but he's from the Bay Area too. And I was just like, that's, that's all I need. I don't, I just think the idea of like playing this game like waiting and hoping that the right person chooses me that that they'll you know when when they're here was this person who dug it and was like yeah let's put it out I just I mean I you know I I feel like sometimes oh I wish I could figure out a way to make money off of you know that I could now that it's out like doing publicity and stuff like that and trying to get people to buy it if they're interested but um but I just think that I did the right thing. Like I can't, I, I just can't string things along hoping that somebody's, that somebody's going to come along and, and like rescue my book from when, when it is what it is going to be, you know, and however it gets out there, if there's, you know, if it's on a small press or a book, big press, I don't care that much because I had a much better experience with this small press with the editing and he cares about it and I'm not just one of like hundreds of people and so it ended up I mean it, I think it ended up for the best but it was a weird it was a, definitely a weird journey that I wasn't I wasn't expecting that's um and that's almost the it's almost the beauty of the narrative is the same way that it got published where it's just like no this is this is what you get you don't you don't understand this is the story if, if you try to if you try to make it something else that it's not 
it falls flat. If she became an Instagram photographer, could you imagine? I, I would have I said, I really love the book. I love the voice. And, you know, and I, and it's just like, and the ending was kind of a letdown. But but at the same time, I think it would if you're doing that rewrite, it would change the whole voice of the whole book because then you're moving. You're like, okay, let's rewrite this for her to move toward that. And right. it's almost like taking a Fellini film and going, okay, now let's just put explosions in it. Yeah. That's the absurdity of like. Because I think that it moves. I mean, it moves along. It's not like. I mean, I feel like there's she 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 changes in some way, but it's not monumental, but it's also not totally stagnant. I don't know. I just I couldn't I just feel like life is so not like that where all of a sudden there's I mean, there are these bright spots and the things that happen, but at the same time a lot of it is just so incremental and so small and it's about convincing yourself that that you've got to take some kind of a step to change something, but it's not it's not super dramatic a lot of times. That's the kind of stuff I like. I mean, that's, you know, that's so much of the stuff that I like to, you know, movies I like to watch. I mean, I love, you know, super long 70s domestic films and stuff like that. Yeah, and there's, and there's just a beauty to it. And I, I, I really hope, like, I really hope that comes back. I really hate the let's be catchy, let's be catchy. Let's, and you just kind of got to, we have to like just step back and go, what's true? It's about the honesty of storytelling. That's like, even, even my friends who are like, they write crime novels and you know, they're in genre, they still have the truth. You can still tell it's coming from a place of utter honesty. And that's, that's like the whole beautiful, that's, that's when the novel is just beautiful is when it's coming from honesty and not coming from a, how can we market this? Yeah. Or like, oh, people really need something to happen here. People are expecting that something, yeah, that something's going to, some big thing is going to happen here. Something's really going to change. And it's like, well, I don't know. Like a lot of times it doesn't. And, and I, and when, from doing Porchlight, the storytelling series for so many years, you really, I, I've really learned that just watching people be their authentic selves as opposed to sometimes somebody can come and tell a story and you're like, I don't know if that, I don't know if that really happened that way. Like, I think that they're, they're structuring this a little bit to make it sound like they had this realization at this moment when maybe they didn't. And, and I would, I just prefer something that feels more honest and messy a little bit, you know, it's not so buttoned up and, and um, then, then just, you know, something that like kind of hits all these markers that we're used to, like with a, like with a pop song or something, or this happened with a poetry slam when I used to do that in the 90s too. Like it was really fun for a while. And then all of a sudden there became a thing like, what's the perfect slam poem, you know? And and then everybody's thing started to sound the same. And it's kind of like, like I'm sitting in this recording studio. My husband's a uh, mix engineer and, and uh, producer. And like watching all the like faders and buttons and everything, it's like, oh yeah, you when you hear songs on the, you know, hit like top 40 radio, like they're all doing these certain things that, that make them a hit, you know? And, and it's just, it's so inspiring to listen to musicians who make stuff knowing they're not making a hit, but they're making some beautiful, honest piece of something. And it's like, oh yeah, you can, I don't know, part of it comes from, part of it comes from within. And part of it is this external thing of, of of how um, of, of if you decide to work in this model that's out there already, and 
And I just think that like, it just, I don't know, like I wish sometimes I could be, have more of a commercial sensibility because it would be nice to make a little more money, but it's like, I just don't, you know, I just don't. And I think that like reading my book, it's like you relating with that. It's like some of us are just weirdos and we're just always going to be weirdos. But that's the beauty of it. And I, and I, even the people who try to gear toward a marketing, you know, it's that so many fail, especially in, you know, just, it's, you're just like, don't, it's. Yeah, I yeah, I'd rather fail doing my own weird thing than than fail, you know, trying to do something that's not me. Um, I always yeah, I always think of this quote from that movie Slacker, where it's like at the very end, and there's this crazy guy, and he's like, you know, I might not live well, but at least I don't have to work to do it. <laughs> and I always just think of that as like, you know, I just you just do your own thing and you're living, you're do, you know, you're able to get through and but you just I think it's just like having your interior voice. It's hard to follow it sometimes, but if you don't, I think you feel so out of sorts and I think a lot of people aren't super in touch with that and and so they're grasping sometimes. And and grasping is kind of just sad to watch. It's embarrassing. Hey, where where did where did you do your uh, slam poetry in the nineties? Oh, um, well, let's see. This was like in the. I remember. Oh my god, the first time I remember being in a slam, my friend Gary Glazner, who was the one of the people who who had the idea to make it a national thing. He had met the guy Mark Smith who founded it in Chicago. And Gary was living in San Francisco and he thought, well, why don't we, you know, there's these teams like in these different cities. What if we get together the Boston people and the Chicago people? And I think there was one in um, Chapel Hill. And then San Francisco was the fourth national team. So we did the first. So he told me about it. He said, come because I'd been reading at the Chameleon with Bucky Sinister. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, you know, I was just reading my things, which I didn't even think of, of course, as poetry at all. It was like your three minute thing that you read on stage. And then, um, and then Gary said, well, let's, you know, I'm involved in this thing. We're going to do a slam. And of course we were just like, what? You're going to score people's poems. It's so lame, you know? And he's like, no, it's just stupid. Like the best poem never wins. It's, it's just a, you know, it's just like a gimmick. And so because we loved Gary, a bunch of us decided to do it. But it was at this space on Valencia between 14th and 15th that like somebody lived there and but they would have shows. And then I remember one time after a poetry slam, there literally was an orgy and there were mattresses and like couches that were up against the wall. And then as soon as we got off the stage and our our event was over, then it was orgy time. So like we we all finished doing our poetry and then um, they started setting up for the orgy as we left. And, oh, um, you didn't stay because I was going to ask if it was a pretty people orgy or an ugly people orgy because there's just some you just don't want to see, you know. Oh, I I mean, oof, I just oh boy, that that I have a little mini rant. That was the good thing about writing this as fiction instead of nonfiction is that I could just have my little mini rants about like sex nerds and how cool and perverted they think they are all the time and i'm like oh in my book i just get like everybody's a pervert it's just some people just think it's really cool to talk about it all the time um but uh yeah so i i did enjoy being able to go off on little rants and things that were like i don't know if i feel that way sometimes i do and it was nice to not have to to like be beholden to my actual you know beth lissick writing 
nonfiction voice of like, you know, making fun of something or 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 whatever it was. So how how was that? Because because you are no, I mean, you're really known for your storytelling and for and um and for uh, the, your your nonfiction and your essays. How was it getting a novel out there? Did that was there more vulnerability? Was it less? Yeah, I thought there was way. I mean, the only thing that made me feel vulnerable vulnerable about doing it was that I hadn't done it before. So I didn't know if I was doing it right. You know, it's like I can go off on my whole rant from 10 minutes ago about like, you just have to follow your inner monologue, your inner voice and be true to yourself. And then at the same time, it's like, I don't know if I'm doing this right. Like I, I don't, I, so that was the part that made me feel uh, a little nervous about it. But in general, I loved not having to take responsibility for thoughts and feelings and could just put it all on somebody else. Less. Yeah. I thought there was way, I mean, the only thing that made me feel vulnerable, uh, vulnerable about doing it was that I hadn't done it before. So I didn't know if I was doing it right. You know, it's like I can go off on my whole rant from 10 minutes ago about like, you just have to follow your inner monologue, your inner voice and be true to yourself. And then at the same time, it's like, I don't know if I'm doing this right. Like I, I don't, I, so that was the part that made me feel uh, a little nervous about it. But in general, I loved not having to take responsibility for thoughts and feelings and could just put it all on somebody else. I mean, so fun. I'm sorry, I just had a breakdown. I completely forgot to record the Zoom on here, but I'll have it on here. But we've had oh. some good stuff for video. I was like, oh crap, because I'm gonna cut some. I'm sitting there going, this this is gonna be the part where I cut in the video. I haven't been recording this whole time. Oh my God. I'm on this thing. Okay. I just had a breakdown. <laughs> okay, so what do you have to do? Do you have to go? No, what we do, no, no, what we do is, see, I don't edit. So this is all going to be on Drinks with Tony. Great. <laughs> my, my breakdown and everything. <laughs> Great. I love it. Why edit? Come on. But, oh my God, I don't, okay. That just really threw me. Oh, yeah. Well, I, you weren't going to, were you going to um, uh, show this whole Zoom? Or you were just... I was going to show um, maybe about 10 minutes of it. So oh, okay. Well, that'll just happen later then. Snippets. Anyway, you're listening to Drinks with Tony, and that was me having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> Hit record on Zoom. That's the thing. Sorry I interrupted you there. You were uh, oh, no, that's okay. Um, but I, I was just saying that what I like about writing fiction is that you, I don't have to take responsibility for, I mean, you take some responsibility, but, it, but as far as what I think, you know, it's like I, I had this great character that I could just put everything on her and it didn't matter if I, Beth Lissick, feel this way, Edie felt this way. And it allowed me to write things that were, I just, she could just be a lot more jaded and I could, I could work within the structure of another mind basically. And, and it, so that felt super freeing to me to not be limited to what I think about gentrification in San Francisco, you know? I just, I mean, I think the reason I had to do it as a novel, I was so sick of talking about it. And I was so sick of complaining about it. And I was sick of other people complaining about it. And, you know, that doesn't mean we can't complain about it. But I just needed that character as a way to work through some of my feelings without it always being like, 
here's my experience and here's what I felt, you know, I, I just thought like, oh, I can, I can put her in all sorts of situations and, and have this kind of work through, I think what was my sadness about it, but without having to write about my individual Bethlehem sadness, you know, it's just, it was, it was really great to have a character to, to do that with. And that, and that's where we get to the point of uh, working with our characters and we find empathy in various um, angles on it. And that's because I like, I mean, personally, we, when I'm putting something into a character, it's always a part of me. And it's, and I used to think it wasn't. I used ah, to, oh, because yeah. I would base it on my people that were pieces of utter shit in my life. And I'd be like, that's the enemy. That's the person. And I would write them and I would write them and I'd just be like, fuck them. Yeah, this is what you're going to do, you asshole. And then, and then I realized, oh crap, I'm that. I'm bringing that part of me into that character. And there's, uh, it's not fun to find out that you have that in you. But at the same time, there's something kind of like gratifying to go, oh, wait, we all have our asshole inside of us. We, all have, we, are, we do have our shitty selves. We have our shitty thoughts. Yeah. Band into a character. Let, let's see where they go. And then, it, and then I feel like we, it kind of gives me empathy where I'm like, Oh yeah, but that person may be going through what I was putting that character through in my fiction, but they're doing that. Oh, yeah, yeah. One of my biggest lessons, just in life in general, is that when people, I, I often think like, I don't have to spend my whole life being that person. Like when somebody is an asshole to me, or or somebody, it's just, I, I think like, wow, like that person has to go around being themselves and that has got to be so hard and that's how I find empathy for assholes is I think like sometimes people are insecure and so they're shy and retiring and they don't want to get in the way or, and then some people are insecure and they become raging assholes yeah. and it's all based out of this fear and insecurity and they're hard to deal with but it's like man imagine having to be walk walk around with that much anger and yeah it's it's that's anyway that's just how I generally or I just think wow a lot of people are on pills or had parents who were alcoholics or something you know it's like I don't know but that I think with Edie I just thought like she's so she feels so entitled to this this experience and and so it was gratifying in a way to just think like who would she be without this scene that she thinks she's been so cool and so protected being a part of this art scene and so much cool stuff going on and then that's not there and the people aren't really there anymore and so who is she without that and she doesn't really know she has she's not quite sure she's just kind of a big bag of downers you know complaining about shit and she knows she can't be that person um, so she's, you know, trying to figure out how not to be a total complainer, jaded, you know, Generation X woman anymore. I, I was her for a while. That's what I know. Me too. I'm like, I've got everything I've ever wanted right here in this eight block radius. Like, <laughs> Yeah, there's no reason to leave San Francisco. Why would you ever go to Oakland? That's ridiculous. We yeah, are. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's and I was you know when I used to write for the San Francisco Chronicle and I was doing pirate radio in San Francisco and all the venues I was on their list to come in uh, for yeah, yeah. 
you know, and free drinks, go to free shows, like, yeah. And that was like, that was my life a decade ago. And then when I moved to LA, I was nobody. And I was yeah, like, me. I used to bring my crates of records. And it's just like, hey, old man. I'm all, huh? <laughs> it's just like, oh, wait. No, that part of your life is done. You know, you, yeah. Welcome to the new one, which is yeah. beautiful. There's, and you know what scares me? No, sorry. This is me. It is not my fictional character complaining. This is what scares me is um, the people who stay in it. The people who stay in that vibe, and I see a lot of people in San Francisco in that, and it scares me. I've gone to like, like I'll go to some shows to see a friend's band, and I'll be like, oh my God, these people are 10 years older than me and still living it and thinking they're cool. This scares me. Yeah, I mean, I think that if it's like, if it makes you happy, that's one thing. But I think with a lot of people, all there's so much of what is left is the complaining about how it's not as great as it used to be. And it's like, you know what, then you need to move somewhere else where you're, where you're not going to be reminded every day, or you need to change your attitude about something or, or help do something to make the city better in a way. And I think that's what I did with Edie is like, she never, she never tried to make the city any better. She never, you know, I think she, she puts in these sad things. Like one time we did a show and raised $72 for the food bank, but like, but, and, or people who complain about the homeless, you know, in San Francisco, which I was always just like, God, the homeless problem here is terrible. But like, I never, I never worked with homeless people in San Francisco ever, you know? I mean, and so it's, it is that, that seeing people who are still there, like I want them to be happy that they're there because if they're not, then they're doing something wrong and it's a, and it's a drag, you know? So it's like, yeah, seeing people who are in their sixties who are still going out to shows, like that actually makes me happy when I see somebody doing that. Um, but if they're not happy doing that, then that's where it gets really bleak and, and, um, and sad, yeah. Yeah, it's, I, I, the, I think the thing that bugged me was the people who still think they're punk rock edge and they're doing things out of punk rock. And you're like, dude, you're not a teenager and I'm not either. It's, you know, we don't have to come at each other like we're big punkers. We're not. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's wearing their comfortable shoes now. They've got their insoles and their docks or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, you just reminded me of something. What was it? Oh, I forgot. That's what happens when you get older. Yeah. Forget. Yeah. Just the good things. <laughs> like that. Uh, yeah. the, oh, um, they never said, does it, I can't remember, does it say what, what, uh, what weekly she got into um, at the beginning? I don't say, um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't say, I just say weekly paper. And, and I think I was imagining it kind of as the ethic weekly because I took a little jab at how they used to think that they were, you know, so edgy and then they got bought because they were the first ones before the guardian because i worked for the guardian so oh. we always thought we were cooler than the weekly because weekly was owned by you know like the whole you know it's national conglomerate who thought they were edgy having their weekly papers so that's i did picture it being being the weekly i interviewed to be uh, to work as a um something in the music calendar section of the sf weekly god this must have been like 2005 the publishers there I'm sitting there with the publisher and the managing editor, conference room, and then, you know, he's, he was so uptight. I, don't, I forget what his name is, but he was the most uptight dude. He asked me the question, he goes, where will you be in five, where do you think you'll be in five years? And I started cracking up. I couldn't stop laughing, and he kept the story. I couldn't laugh too. Yeah, and, and, he, and he's like, what? And I'm like, I'll answer that when you tell me where SF Weekly will be in five years. Ooh, and, good one. 
burn. Yeah, Sick just, burn, Tony. I didn't get the job. Two years later, they got bought out by someone else and he was fired. And I was just like, oh. Yeah, well, there, there is something too about like the world that we're talking about where, yeah, like the idea that somebody would ask you what your five-year plan was, it's just like, fuck you, old man, like straight corporate man. Like I don't have to answer to you, you know? Like there's just so much attitude. And cause it's like, you see it everywhere and you don't, you, you're just like, I can't be part of that. And I think, I think a lot of it is just like growing up with Reagan as president, um, you know, with AIDS, with, and it just, it's just punk rock, you know, going to shows at Gilman as a teenager and just seeing that and being like, yeah, fuck that. I don't want to be any part of that corporate world. And it really sticks on you. It's hard to get it off of you once you, once you feel that way, you know? Um, and because you don't know, I mean, remember when being a sellout was actually a thing? Like that's, it's not even a, it's not even a concept anymore. Yeah. Like that, being a sellout is not even a concept. And, and um, so much of like the music that Eli works with these bands and these kids are making music and like he does work with a lot of younger people and they're, you know, putting out their first record or whatever. And it's a goal to try and sell a song for a TV show or, cause that's how they make money. Cause nobody's making money off of records anymore. So it's like, you hope that you get your song placed in a, you know, a commercial or a TV show or a movie so that you can actually continue being a musician. And, and it just, it's so wild. Cause that was such a big thing back in our day. It's like, you didn't want to be a sellout. Like that was, you know, that was the worst. Isn't that hilarious? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. All the music licensing stuff. That's a whole nother aspect. I, but you, you mentioned 934 Gilman and I just remembered Mr. T experience wrote a song about you, right? Um, well, there, there is a song called Ask, Ask Beth, but that's a song about the, um, the advice. There was a sex advice columnist in the San Jose Mercury News uh, named Beth. So that's about Beth. But there is, you can talk to Dr. Frank about it. There possibly is a Beth Lissick song in his oeuvre. Yeah. Well, I, I, think <laughs> I, I just remember because I think, because uh, I interviewed him a couple times, probably 15 years ago. You guys went to the same high school. I mean, he was older. Let's just point out how much older Frank is than you. But he, yeah. but he went to your high school, right? Yeah, I was. I was with his younger brother, uh, yeah. who was in. Yeah, it, it's. It was such a trip that. Um, and I didn't even know his younger brother knew who I was because his younger brother was way more popular than me. I was just like, you know, it's just it was. It's just so weird when you go back. I went back to my twenty-year reunion, and. Um, you know, all I knew was I was just this weird Jehovah's Witness guy that was kind of going to see bands and was just trying to reach out. And I just, but I was preaching every weekend. I was, I was preaching to these people. And at the 20 year reunion, I was, you know, I was like, oh, I'll show them the new me. I'll show them the new me, you know? And then, yeah, yeah. And I get there and they're like, oh yeah, we knew you were a Jehovah's Witness. We just thought you were cool. We would see you preaching, but you're a nice guy. And I was like, well, that was it? <laughs> I love, I love the lesson as you get older that you realize like no one is thinking about you even an infinitesimal amount as you think that people are thinking about you or that you're thinking about yourself. No one, get, no one cares. No one's like making these harsh judgments like regarding you and then deciding to like you're just walking by there in their own head doing their own thing. And that, that's a great lesson of getting older. So you had a good experience at your, uh, at your reunion? I did. It was really nice to see a lot of people there. And because um, I hadn't seen a lot, of, you know, even though I lived in San Francisco, 
and I was only, you know, 10 miles away from Millbrae, I haven't seen most of those people in 20 years. Yeah, and a lot of them probably still live in the peninsula or South Bay, like with my high school too, like people stuck, you know, there's a lot of people who stayed in that town or right, right nearby. And it's, and it's so diff it's so funny how culturally different it just, it still felt. And they're just like, oh yeah, we come to San Francisco once or twice a year. It's yeah. the thing. We go to the, we go to the Mission Street, you know, the garage on Mission and Fifth. And then we just walk up to, you know, she's right. right. <laughs> well, that's not San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I mean, isn't it wild being a peninsula or South Bay person too, probably same with Marin and East Bay, that the fog is such a huge part of being in San Francisco that somehow it's like not just crossing over a bridge or a tunnel, but it's like somehow escaping into that fog is like a whole other way of being. And that, and that there's people who they can't handle the fog, Tony, they don't want, you know, they don't want to live around it. They, they want to be in their, you know, South Bay or Marin where it's sunnier and warmer. And, and, and I just think that was such a big uh, thing to me as a, as a kid and a teenager of thinking like, no, oh, the fog is cool. Cause you're just like walking around in the fog and like, you just, you know, you look like you're just in a noir as you're walking through the streets, you know? And, and that's such a, a psychological uh, jump. I think that you make when you're a kid that grows up not in San Francisco and then you, you cross that barrier. Well, I remember that my last night in San Francisco, I was walking around at like four in the morning before I moved to LA. I didn't know I was moving to LA, yet, but, oh. uh, but I was going to LA to work, you know, to work on, to see where Jesus jerk was. And I'm just like, I just got to be down there. And I remember walking through the Tenderloin, it was four in the morning and just seeing the fog and just going, I might be leaving. I might be leaving. And it just, and it was like really emotional for me. And it's dense. Yeah, I know. When I, right after I moved, every time I would come back, I would just walk and walk and walk way more than I did when I lived there. You know, because I always I had a car, and I think that did you have a car when you lived in San Francisco? Oh, no, because no, you were in. I lived in the East Bay for a long time too. So, um, but but yeah, I would when I after I moved, I would just go back and just like walk and walk and walk and walk. It's yeah. I mean, I just miss it. You know, in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I love going up there now and just having the home feeling and seeing all my friends and then experiencing it in a different way where you just, you know, especially like in, if you're in Tenderloin or Nolo or Knob Hill and there's, there's a lot of anger and anxiety there. Yeah. And, you know, just the vibe of the air and just to sit back and go, Ah, just kind of like watch it as an outsider. Yeah, because because that's the thing. It's like I miss it, but I don't think that I'll ever live there again. I really don't think I will. And and it's fine because if I can go back and I can visit and I can be there and sit like you know experience it, go get a drink at Specs, go over to City Lights, walk or you know all that stuff. And I'm there and I'm enjoying it and I'm feeling in it and or I'm with my friends or we're doing a porch light show or whatever. Like that's fine. I don't, I don't have to, I don't have to live there, you know, I, I can still really, really enjoy the hell out of it without, without being there. Cause it is homey. It feels homey. Yeah. We have, our, what's that? Right. Well, just even though, and despite all the gentrification and all the money and all that stuff, I mean, it's, it is daunting and it does feel overwhelming sometimes, but it's funny that despite all that, it still feels like San Francisco to me. Like it really does. I, I yeah. Good. When, I, when, um, when people were trying to tip Google buses and they were some of my friends, mm -hmm. that's when I went, I think I need to leave. Cause I was just like, why, why are you 
why are you putting, why are you making people feel scared who don't even know why you're making them feel scared? And many of them really enjoy what they do. They enjoy their life as a, in tech. And I was just, I couldn't get that harsh divide of they would stop a Google bus and start tipping it. And people are just trying to go to work. And that's yeah. it's like, I'm not on that team anymore. <laughs> I'm not on that team. I'm not, I'm not. I don't know if you remember the Google buses, the tipping the Google buses. In the oh, middle. yeah. No, no, I do remember that. And right. It's just kind of like, God, I, that's not, I think that's the answer. Like, I don't think that's the way, you know, a bunch of like tech nerd people who are just, you know, trying to do their job, like came here because they, that's where the jobs were. And yeah, they want to live in San Francisco because they don't want to live in, in Milpitas, you know, and, and, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's good to be able to duck. I think also ducking out of that, you're not confronted with it every day and you don't have to then carry on this long engaged battle with it because I'm not, I'm not seeing it every day. So it's, I know it's there and I know it's happening and I, I know people have a really rough time with it. And that city does feel crazy in a lot of ways. Um, but I don't know. I just feel like it, it'll, it's going to come. It's, it's, it's still there and it'll, it'll come back and it's a boom town. It's a bus town. It'll, it'll, it, the weirdness is always going to be there. It's always it's a freak magnet. Baghdad by the Bay. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Herb Kane. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Beth Lissick. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh my God. It's so great to talk to you. It's really nice from, from my quarantining to, to see if, see a face that's not that i'm not uh, related to <laughs> beth lissick on drinks with tony check out her fantastic debut novel Edie on the green screen remember to subscribe to the tony duchene channel on youtube for the new video interview show turn it up a portion of this episode will air next week on there as well as a performance by our musician friend jeff campbell thanks for listening and i'll see you next week when our guest is nick flynn all right, and we're out.